give, give you my background. I, I was converted out of a, a family. None of my family were Christians. Um, I heard the gospel in some fashion when I was at... Um, in fact, a Catholic guy in my biology class when I was in year 12 said, you ought to read the Bible. I came from a troubled family. I think I expressed something of that to him. He said, you ought to read the Bible. A Catholic guy said that to me. So I, I thought, are you, an, are you crazy? Have you seen how thick it is? But I thought I would. I gave, it a, I gave it a crack. I began to read the Bible and I was compelled by it. I was reading through the Old Testament, through Genesis, and I found I was not getting anywhere very quickly. Um, and I went to the New Testament around about the same time I heard uh, a fellow at a school, Christian camp, speak on the gospel. And I thought, I believe in Jesus, but I have been too gutless to ever make a response to him. So I made a response, a provisional one. I kept reading the Bible. I went to university. I didn't attend church. Um, and I hooked up with Cole Marshall. At least he um, collared me on my opening day of university. Who knows who Cole Marshall is? Cole's written the Growth Groups book. Um, and he was with the Navigators. And he discipled me for a year at uni. I still hadn't begun going... Well, actually, I began going to church. And it was a little Anglican church of about 40 people. Um, certainly no more than that. Uh, and I don't have a theological degree. Um, Cole being a navigator, not that he turned me off it, but the nav subtly turned me off ever getting a theological degree. So I did some theological study, but I'm not coming to you with a bunch of... Um, uh, I'm not the city uh, theologian. I am a city guy. I grew up on the beaches. Bruce is the country boy. And in one sense, when we did some Q&A after this, um, it might be worthwhile to filter what I say through the grid of country ministry because... I'm not coming to you, I guess what I come to you as someone who's seen a church grow in a country area from small beginnings to something that is intimidatingly large. And, I, and therefore I'm saying this so that you won't feel intimidated by it. I'm not going to advocate for your particular practice today, but I want to talk to you about some principles. And I, so I give you that background so you know where I'm coming from. And, and let me mention three assumptions at the outset, which you don't need to write down, um, my first assumption is that even though I don't speak about it today, we'll be praying. <laughs> you got this better than me, Bruce. I will get it after a while. We'll, we'll be praying. Uh, we'll be people who are praying. If you know that God is sovereign over salvation, I trust that you do, then you'll be praying people and you'll want your congregations to be praying people because we won't see people converted apart from that. Second thing I reckon is an assumption is you need to know, and I suspect you're persuaded of the fact, that, that this aspect of church life is diagnostic of the healthier church. If you're in a church that's growing but not evangelising, there is something profoundly wrong with it. Um, it. It means it's not well. There's something right at the DNA that's sick. Because Jesus wouldn't have us develop churches that don't share the good news. It was what he was about. So this issue is diagnostic of the health of any church, whether it's big or small. And the third thing perhaps to say is um, we'll want our people to grow. That is, we'll not do it on the back of some charismatic leader. Um, we will need our people where they are, in the pews, Sunday by Sunday, with a mindset, and the point's been um, mentioned by Russ in the first instance and then Bruce, We'll, we'll want a mindset among our people that will mean they will evangelise. Now, they're my assumptions, and I'm, going to, I'm therefore going to assume them, not speak to them during the course of the time. But um, uh, what I want to speak about now is the fact that in laying the foundations, there's two things I'm going to be doing. One is to talk about how do you, how do you lay the foundations of a mission-minded church. 
That's my, that's my brief in the next short period of time. And the first thing I reckon I'll, I'll be saying on that is this, and this, this sounds a little bit techy, a little bit schoolish. It ought not to be that. My situation is I've been in a church where we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people converted. Um, and we continue to see that, which is very exciting. It didn't start like that. We saw people begin to be converted in ones and twos. But the one benefit I have is, not as an academic, but as a person who's seen it is, I've been able to just give my time and attention to a couple of things in church life, and this is one I've given my time and attention to. So I've had the time to analyse the process. To analyse the process. That is, there are two processes when it comes to evangelism. One is, what's the process by which the non-Christian person comes to faith? Now, I know God is sovereign. I know they need to hear the gospel in that, but I'm suggesting to you there is a process by which people come to faith and there is a process by which the average Christian develops a mindset about evangelism. And I want to talk to you about those two processes. And so the first thing to say on the the process of how people come to faith is this, times have changed. You know, um, I don't know how many of you were around when Billy Graham came in 1979 how many people were around then? How many people went to Billy Graham in 1979? Hmm, I did. 69? 59? You look around in churches in... Uh... <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> I, went, I did that one really quick, didn't I? <laughs> but I, I, I reckon when you look around churches, uh, many of our churches today, older churches, there are people there who look back to the time when Billy Graham came in 1959. Masses of people were converted. But times have changed in that um, the average pleb in, the, in Victoria, in New South Wales, has nowhere near the kind of background they used to have of understanding of the Bible, of God. Their God concept today is very, very different to what it used to be. So times have changed. And I mention that because um, a friend of mine, a colleague on the Central Coast, suggested we run a big mission, a big outreach mission next year. And I thought about it for a while, and I know Bruce has done it recently, and so I'm interested in um, what he's found. But I don't think the big outreach thing would work today in the same way it worked in 1979, 1969, 1959. I don't think it will. Because the the distance between the hearer and the Christian is now so vast to join the dots between the two there's just a whole lot of dots to join in 1979 when I was on University of New South Wales campus I spoke to people and in a lunchtime they were converted I don't but for the grace of God I think you rarely see that today I'm not saying it doesn't happen I'm just saying it rarely happens today and so we ought not to simply replicate the same things we did 30 years ago and in Christian life we tend to do that Lots of the things we do tend to be very, very old and, um, and actually have outlived the time in which they, were, um, they operated like we used to think they did. second thing to say, though, therefore, is um, um, that smaller steps are needed. There are, there are many more smaller steps required for a person to come to faith. Now, remember, I'm speaking about the process of conversion. There's many more smaller steps required. Now, I'm going to say more about that in a moment. But, but part of it is thinking through how does a person today come to a hearing of the gospel in the initial instance and what do they need after that? And what do they need after that? And what do they need after that? Um, 
Now, I suspect we haven't done that thinking for a long time. It's certainly not replicated in the materials we have available, I think. And so we really had to write our own material to, to get some of that stuff to actually function the way I think it actually does happen today. Um, next thing, therefore, to say is there actually is a pathway. There's a, there's a pathway by which the non-Christian comes to an initial hearing of the gospel. And it may be, for example, as Bruce goes out and does a funeral um, in Orange and a bunch of people come and he says something in his gospel proclamation that will ring bells for people. Um, But then how do you provide a next step for them? What I'm suggesting is we actually do need to envisage what's the pathway we expect people to move along. In our church we've got, we have a massive big outreach event which is like a beach mission. We run each Year, but we started it with 25 people. We started it 14 years ago. We had a team of 25 young people. I think probably 100 kids might have come along for the week. Their parents came along and heard something of the gospel. In fact, their parents didn't come. We just had the kids. But we grew it and grew it and grew it. So now we have a few hundred people, um, adults, come along to hear pre evangelistic talks during a week in January. And we have a team of 120 that run it. And we have about 800, 900 kids that come for the week. Um, so it didn't start like that. It started like that. But that's the beginning of a pathway for us. Because it means that on that occasion, lots and lots of people hear the gospel in some sort of rudimentary form. They hear just a little bit of it. But the next thing we invite them to is our... January series. Our January series is a series we've just developed where we've gone out and asked the community, what are your four biggest questions about God? We did that one two years ago. This year what, it'll be, what are your four biggest questions about heaven and hell? We'll survey them. They'll hear something at our big outreach. But the next step is they'll hear about the summer series and lots of them who went to that will come to this. But that's not quite where we want them. It's, they'll hear something of that. We need to provide what's the next step for them. So you got what I'm saying? There's a pathway. Um, and and I, I think the third thing to say is, uh, the, or rather the fourth thing to say is, church, now I don't, think I'm in contra- I don't think I'm in contrast with what Bruce is saying here, but church is not the principal event for evangelism. Now is that a surprise for you? Do you want me to debrief what I mean by that? Yeah. Sunday church gathering. Yeah, thanks for that, Chris. Yeah, good on you. The Sunday church gathering is not the principal event at which people will hear the gospel in some carefully structured way. Now, can you see what the problem is if you think that is the case? The church is the place where they'll do that? You'll swing everything you do on a Sunday to be evangelistic and you'll dumb it down so much that your, your Christians, which is who church is for will not hear the gospel. That is to say, they'll, they'll not be built up and taught. Um, and so we went and visited a church in, uh, in America to find out how they did things, and they had very decisively swung the Sunday event to be for the outsider. And so where did all the insiders end up going? Well, they had to start another church midweek for them. And that didn't quite cut it, and so they had to start Bible study groups for them, but... People weren't skillful enough with the Bible to handle the Bible in their Bible study groups, so they had to put the pastor on tape. So the pastor's on tape, and he gives the 
explanation of the sermon and then the groups just stand around and discuss it. You see what you've done then? You've just dumbed it down so much that the Christian no longer knows how to use the Bible. So you need to be clear-minded, at least we've recognised from the outset church is not the place where they will hear the gospel in a sustained way, though every time we preach they ought to hear something of it. Um, But we need somewhere where they can hear it in a way that will give it to them in a digestible enough form that, that they'll get it. Now, we're going to stop after a bit and do, um, and do some Q&A, but let me give you some myths, therefore, myths about the process of conversion that I think are just worthwhile having. And by the way, I'm just going to work through these really quickly. Um, and so I'll say more about some and less about others, um, and we'll stop at the end. And if you want to debrief any of these, we'll have time to do it. But let me mention some myths um, I reckon one myth is that you, um, that you just preach the gospel and people will be converted. Now, does that sound like heresy to you? Because I should have said one of my assumptions is the gospel will convert people. The gospel will convert people. But if, if we assume that we just preach the gospel and people can then join the dots for themselves, I think... I think that doesn't... Um, we're not seeing the fruit from that in the same sort of way anymore because people just don't have the furniture in place. There's a need to preach the gospel and there's a need to do something else beyond just preaching the gospel. Now, it sounds like heresy, so cut me some slack on it and I'll show you what I mean. Who's used Alpha before? Yeah. Do you know, one of the best things about Alpha is if I can be so bold, is not the theology. Now, some of you will know what I mean by that. Alpha was never actually set up to be an evangelistic course. It was actually set up to be a discipleship course in an Anglican charismatic church. And so it moves on from the gospel very, very quickly. But one of the genius things about Alpha, I think, um, is that the sociology of Alpha, where you sit around a table over a sustained period of time, that's one of the most beneficial things about it. And my reading of it is this. I think the non-Christian person is now so far away and has so many preconceived ideas about what the Christian is that they need the theology, but they need it in the kind of context where they can eyeball the Christian and ask them questions and see that they don't have two heads and, you know, and, um, and, and talk through a bunch of the things that really do trouble them. And actually they have so little furniture in place that young ones... Um, and if I can say young, uh, I might say Eric's 28, yeah? Well, I reckon people who are 26 and down, they've got so much less furniture in place than you know, us 40-year-olds. They just don't, they don't process it in the same sort of way. They can't actually articulate their questions. They kind of need to sit opposite a Christian who's well thought through to help them work out what are the questions and objections I have about Jesus that I've never considered before. Now, since I'm, since I'm going okay for time, I'll tell you, I came down on the plane and I sat next to a very flirty woman. And, it was, um, uh, and we got into conversation very, very quickly. She was very, very easy to talk to. And I told her very quickly that I'm a minister, I'm going to a conference. And, <laughs> and, and that dampened things really um, for a little while, but not permanently. But the conversation got to, it got to a point that I could say to her, to me, what do you believe? 
We talked about everything else <laughs> about life, so it was no problem talking about what she believed. And um, she said, well, because she'd mentioned to me a whole bunch of things about her being a Leo. And uh, so I said, look, I know you believe in Australia, etc. but what do you believe about God? She said, well, I believe there is a God. Um, I just haven't thought much about it before. Tell me, what do Christians believe? Now, she was a woman of 40. She's not, a, she's not some young pup. You know, her father was a Catholic and a very, very attend church, attend mass every Sunday Catholic. Her mother was a little disinterested in all that. But you would have thought she'd picked up something next to nothing because she was disinterested. Um, I said to her, if you were going to examine... She, I said, why, why do you reckon you've never pursued these things? She said, I've never had time. Well, you know, you have time for what you make time for. I said, so if you were going to pursue these things further, what would you pursue? Would you pursue astrology or would you pursue the question about God and who he is? She said, oh, I'd pursue the question about God. Well, I was, I'm trying to put in place for some infrastructure by which she might move along the, the line. So where do you reckon you'd do that? She said, well, I've heard about the Gospels, but what are the Gospels? Um, now, here's my point on that. I think she, she needed someone just to help her think, what's the, step, what's the step ahead for me? Where am I on this God question? And why have I never thought about it before? And if I was to think about it, how would I do that? One of the problems with our theology in the absence of sociology is you don't put in place any pathway for the non-Christian to begin to pursue things and they need it now more than ever and I trust that unless God does something extraordinary and I pray that he does all the time, it will get harder and so in our congregations we who perhaps some of you are um, you are faithful Christian members there, we actually need to have the ability to be able to just gently ask the questions about where the non-Christian person is and put them at ease and fill in some of the dots because it's a very much longer process than it ever was. Um, you, um, you preach the gospel, but you need to do more than preach the gospel. Um, there's a sociology that actually helps. And, and secondly, um, one of the myths that I think is the case is that there's a program that works. You know, um, don't, don't go away from this today thinking, what's the program they use at EV Church? We'll just do that and it'll all work. It won't. There, there's no program, I think, that just works. We, um, uh, I'm just stepping back there so, um, so Don can see it there. Um, uh, Simply Christianity, Bruce, do you use Simply Christianity? What do you use? Um, our own version of Christianity Explained. There you go. Uh, Bruce has written his own. We wrote our own. Scott, what do you guys use? Uh, uh, we've been using a, uh, a membership course. Yep. <laughs> bunch of places use simply Christianity. Um, we, for reasons not of because we're so insular and we're so snooty that we can't use anyone else's stuff, we just we wrote our own stuff um, because there were things we wanted that we figured that needed to be in it. But if you just pass that program to someone it's not going to just work Do you know there's there's a whole bunch of things that go into place to actually make it work and what we found is we started off with a five-week course we did um, uh, we did the claims of Jesus on the first night we did why should I believe the Bible on the second night we did the issue of sin on the third night uh, we did 
faith and the cross on the fourth night and we did how do you respond on the fifth night. And we found it worked really well. We started off with a room full of Christians. There were about 20 and there were maybe four non-Christians, that's all. And no one knew that which was the one and which was the other except that we actually found that the Christians after a while out of themselves and you, you don't mind that of course but they were um, <laughs> they were too impatient with their non-Christian friends they were, don't you get it? <laughs> wanting them to have it in a night and so we had to then train the Christians how do you handle your non-Christian friends in a setting like this? We did that um, starting years ago, 10 years ago perhaps, and um, I, I guess it was that. And we changed it because we found that at the end of it, the people who'd come along as inquirers were so disappointed it was over that we figured we'd have no problem adding an extra night. And I wanted to add an extra night. I wanted to do a night on the resurrection. So we made it a six-week course. And I guess we've done it better over the years. But my little warning there is, there's not some program that just works. You've got to think through... What are the things that help? And I'm happy to come back to that issue later. Now, there's the, there's the first part of it, the, the process of conversion. I'm saying I reckon there's a, there's a process by which, um, in the sovereignty of God, people hear the gospel in a setting that's comfortable enough for them to risk themselves, to ask questions, and comfortable enough for the Christian to risk their social capital and invite a friend. Because um, there's the second part of the process or at least the second process. It's the process of growing in evangelism. And I've got, I'm going to spend, say, half an hour on that because all this fails if you don't have Christians who are confident to evangelise. Now let me stop there for a moment and get you to think. And Scott, I don't know, this might be no good for the tape, is it? But... Uh, uh, what are the things do you think that stop Christians from evangelising? Fear. Fear. Fear? Yep. I just don't have the answers to the questions. Okay, yep, so. Okay, so they're not willing to put in the hard work? Yeah, what was the word that was used before? Social loafing. Yeah. 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 Okay, I'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah. There was another one down there, so that I missed. Yes. Is that what you mean by fear? fear. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, so, so not seeing anything happen for it. Yeah, discouragement. Yeah, Vary? Yeah. Yes. Yes. There's a big issue here. Now, I'm not sure what it was like in the 50s. I wasn't around. Um, I was kind of around for a little while in the 60s. I don't know what it was like for Christians during that period of time to try to evangelise. But I suspect churches were somewhat full in those days, beginning to empty during the 60s, but they were somewhat full, so no one actually felt they had to do anything to get people there. My parents weren't Christians and they took us to church occasionally. I remember going to Sunday school once. 
And so people just osmosized into church. You know, they drifted in, they heard a bit, they went Christmas and Easter. That's all changed, hasn't it? Um, and so it's very much harder for um, the Christian to make the connection with their non-Christian friend. Can I give you three things, I think, here? Um, that perhaps catches up some, some of the things you say. Unless, a, um, unless the Christian person has a growing conviction, a deep conviction about the centrality of the gospel, they will not evangelise. In the most basic form, really what I'm saying is unless a person has, at the most basic level, assurance of salvation, they won't evangelise. I mean, you're not going to go and advocate... You're not going to advocate a message that you don't believe in really deep in your heart. And so a lack of conviction is absolutely um, essential. It, it, that is, it's essential to the fact that people don't evangelise. Growing conviction is absolutely critical. And so when... Um, uh, I think... Uh, uh, Russ's wife, sorry. Amy? Yeah. Um, selfishness? Yeah. What's behind selfishness is lack of conviction. What's behind fear is lack of conviction. It's actually the issue of who, whose, um, whose praise am I living for, the praise of God or the praise of men? Unless I've sorted that out, I'll never evangelise. And the reality is, I think, in many of our churches, even the mature still wrestle with a fear of man that they've perhaps not analysed, but that's what stops them from evangelising. And unless you help them see it, they don't do anything. No, you, want to, you want to help a person grow in their conviction. And there's a, there's a number of things, I think, on that track that are, I'm concerned is the Bible the word of God. I'm concerned about whether it's possible to believe in this, this day and age. Is there such a thing as hell? Um, I, I'm concerned about, can Jesus really be God? Is the resurrection really true? There's just a whole bunch of doubts that I find that, Christians have. So that when we put on our evangelistic program, we say three things. This is for you if you are just examining these things, if you've never thought about it much before. It's for you, though, if you've been a Christian for some time and you've got, um, you want to strengthen the foundations of your Christian life. And it's for you, of course, if you've got friends who you want to invite. And we want to urge you strongly to do that. Now, we, we do that three-part invitation because on every occasion we run it, we get people who say... I thought I was a Christian, now I realise I'm not. But I want to be. So a lot of the people in our churches just aren't. They're not, when they hear about, and uh, Bruce mentioned before, he preaches repentance and faith. When people hear what repentance and faith actually means, they realise I'm not converted. And so, gee, a number of our people, I think, have come through that kind of situation. Conviction is critical. And we can call it by other names. So it's fear, it's laziness, it's selfishness, it's whatever. It's a lack of conviction that we need to address. Now, happy to come back to that, but let me, um, let me raise there for a second one. It is perhaps more like the one Scott picked up. It's a lack of confidence. A lack of confidence. Um, Scott, you mentioned confidence about... Yeah. So if I get into a conversation with someone, they'll ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. What will I say? Uh, there's a lack of confidence. Um, uh, where would I go to in the Bible to show them the answers to that? Uh, there's a lack of confidence, and I think 
Uh, Laurel mentioned it. Are people being converted? I don't see people converted, so can people possibly be converted? There's a lack of confidence at that level. And unless you deal with that, again, I don't think people are greatly inspired. Conviction's the key issue, um, but the confidence one is not far behind it. And so there is a place for training, an important place for training. It won't solve everything because the conviction issue is so important. There's a place for training. And the third one is this, and, and I suspect we'll find it sooner or later, but um, we need to encourage our people to be connected. Now, can you imagine, if, you're, um, if you don't have kids, does that apply to anyone in this room who doesn't have kids? Oh, OK. Russell and Amy don't have kids yet, but um, when you don't have kids, you know what life's like? Can you remember? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as fantastic as kids are... I mean, it's a, just a different ballgame because you've got this disposable time. You can go around and make friends. I mean, when, we, when I wasn't married, I didn't have kids, I'd, I'd hang out at the beach. I'd meet mates at the beach. We'd go on holidays together. And one of my <laughs> mates, we, that's how we met. I remember we were sitting outside the doctor's surgery one day. I told him the gospel. And I thought, Don is the most darkened bloke I've ever spoken to in my life. He understands nothing. It's pathetic. And three weeks later, he was converted. Because in those kind of days, and my point is about connection here, you, you could make lots of different friends and you would interact with them. But once you're married and you've got kids, you don't tend to do that, do you? You've got a set bunch of friends and... Yeah. So kids' sport, school, yeah. are opportunities that we just need to encourage people to take, to take advantage of those because... If you evangelise just this small, very small pool of friends you've got and that's the end of it, uh, you've got no one else to talk to about the gospel, lack of connection is a critical issue. And I think it is the case that 60% of people... Remember what the figure is, Bruce? 60% of people in Australia don't know a Christian? Yeah, yes, it's, it's extraordinary. I think it's in Australia. Yeah, yeah. And so... And, and that's very easy, of course, for the Christian. If you lack conviction then you'll not go and proactively seek out friendships with people who aren't Christians. It's just too easy to stay in the huddle and hang out with your Christian friends. So three things there. Um, the necessity of growing conviction, of growing confidence, and of growing connection. Um, and I'm saying we need to be very proactive in pursuing all those things. Um, let me give you again some myths about that. And the first myth I want to mention is this one. Um, it's, it's event evangelism versus personal evangelism. Now, which would you rather have? You want both? Yeah, now, Don, tell us. I think that's exactly right. Why do you want both? Um, well, it's just that what we've done in evangelism, uh, I've seen how it works, I guess. Um, that's the reason I want it, because I've seen from experience that personal evangelism is done, and one or two people are attached to a Christian So historically you've seen it work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell you what, I would love if it was just personal evangelism, wouldn't you? I mean, I wouldn't have to run any events if, if the whole congregation were out there just evangelising and then bringing their friends to conversion and following them up and they'd come to church on the weekend. And, wow, it'd be so much easier.
So it raises the corporate dimension of evangelism. Tell you the other thing I think it does. The event gives the person in your congregation the concrete opportunity to invite to something. Because Now, I've grown up in a disciple-making background. Uh, almost from the day I became a Christian, I'd resolved I would go and evangelise on the University of New South Wales campus. I'd do it a minimum of two or three times a week. Um, I've always done it and I don't find it difficult to do. But I think the average person in my church doesn't find it easy to do. Will the average person in your church go and do, Todd, walk up evangelism with you on the main street? And... Yeah. But some do because you've done it, I know. Yeah. Now, the average person in my church probably wouldn't do it. They, they wouldn't do walk up evangelism. Um, our night EV people will, our, our night church people will, because every year at Summerfest we go and do it. And they're the best evangelists we've got. Um, but my morning people are much more timid and uh, they won't risk themselves in quite that way. So, and, and the advantage of doing kind of walk up evangelism is, and a bunch of you guys have done it, I take it, wow, you meet a whole bunch of non Christians in the space of an hour and you hear all their questions and you learn what they're thinking and you it sensitises you to where they're at and you work out how best to interact with them and how do I communicate the gospel quickly? How do I work out where they're coming from? Most Christians, I think, can't do it. And I think most Christians, I think realistically, realistically, most Christians will never be able to lead someone from scratch through to solid walking disciple on their own. I don't mean to be a defeatist there, but I think that is reality. Is that because they're not being trained to do that? Because, you know, now the experience is that I haven't yet met a Christian who says that they don't want to share the gospel and see someone come to know Christ. But they don't get any training. Now, so how do you do it? Like any other job you go to, the first thing that happens is that someone's picked their foot beside you or stands beside you and says, this is the way it happens in our office or organisation or whatever, and yet in the church we expect all these people to be able to do it without training. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think it's partly a training issue, and you can solve some things with training, but for some people it's just a, um, it's a capacity issue. It's a, um, some instance it's teaching an old dog new tricks. Some people have such a fear issue they don't get beyond it. Um, Training will help you a certain distance. I think the reality is not everyone in church, just because of their own personality, just because sometimes the way they're wired, not everyone in the church, I think, um, and how I wish it were otherwise, will be able to lead a person through from, from go to woe. Some can. Yes, yes. Depending on whether you choose only the poor area of town or the or the rich area of town. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But also says to your church, we're about. We're not about growing by transfer. We're about growing by evangelism. We want to. We don't want to reshuffle the deck chairs. 
want people to come to faith. Event evangelism versus personal evangelism, I think you need the event to help the person, help your um, church members have something concrete to invite to and give them the confidence that it'll be worthwhile. Bruce? And by event, do you mean the course that you run or do you mean a men's dinner or, or all of the It might be any of those things. But I will say this. Um, I mentioned to you at the outset a, um, a colleague on the Central Coast who wanted to... Um, he wanted to do, expend, uh, I guess, a large sum of money running a large outreach event of the type that Bruce has recently run in Orange. Uh, he's, and I guess he's envisaging perhaps a couple of thousand people coming over a period of four nights. Um, but as I, as I talk to the guys who are part of the, the brains behind that, um, what some of them don't have in their church is a regular something, a regular event of some sort to which a person uh, in the pew can invite their friend to come and hear the gospel. Rather, in one instance, they say, yes, when there are people that want to hear the gospel, we put something on. Now, what's that going to do? What's that going to do to the church? When there are people there, we'll run an event. When there are not people there, we won't run the event. What does it do to your mentality? Totally, that's right. So having something regularly, and Bruce has uh, something regularly based around Christianity Explained that happens every term. Yeah, And we do it three terms a year, except that we do it, we'd probably do it now nine times a year in different locations. Um, but what that says to the person in the pew is, uh, Christianity Explained, in Bruce's instance, or life, in our instance, or simply Christianity, in Scott's instance, that'll be coming up this term. Who can I invite? Um, so it does, to, as, as Chris is saying, it, it makes them proactive. Uh, and every time they engage in a conversation, they engage in the conversation thinking, I can invite that person to life, invite them to simply Christianity. Um, to not have that just makes them totally passive. Uh, so I mentioned that, Bruce, partly in answer to your question. There needs to be a predictability about the fact that there'll be something on. And if I'm just relying on the men's event at the end of the year and there's too long a wait between now and then, that's not going to help at all. Um, So event versus um, personal evangelism, you do need both, I think. Um, Second thing, though, to say there, um, training is the answer. Now, remember, I'm looking at modern myths. Training isn't totally the answer. Um, Gee, um, we run training things, and I reckon what happens is this... (laughs) I hate to say this to people that write all the training manuals, but I reckon what happens is people want to evangelise. They want to see their friends become Christians. So they go along to the training course. They learn it. They might not do all the homework. And then a week passes, a month passes, <laughs> two months pass, six months pass, and they haven't had... They haven't had any conversation, so they don't remember what they learned, and so it's all forgotten. Most training, just I think, just doesn't work because it's not, it's not implemented immediately. So you need to, in some fashion, run your training in an environment in which it can be implemented. It's not always possible to do that, but sometimes it is. So, so Chris? Roger? 
You've got to practice what you preach. That's hard. It's easy for us who are highly motivated, harder for the person in the pew. Yeah. One way we can do it, though, is we we invite them to our event. We pick a number and say, come along to Simply Christianity, sit in at a table, watch what happens, interact with the people who are there so that you hear what non-Christian people are asking and you... Seek to do the best you can to interact with them. And, and then you debrief the exercise and work out how did you go. So we train them leading up to it. We put them into the event where they can implement it. We debrief them after they've finished it. Um, you know, respectfully, just not so much contradict you, but uh, just change the meaning of that. You've got training there. Now, if it's called disciple-making, um, the training that Jesus did was actually out in the It's not the answer. I agree with you there. But the training on the actual job of evangelism uh, does bring up the answers. Yeah, I'd say, Don, there is a place for both. So there's a place for learning something and then implementing it. But you need you need some sort of positive reinforcement of the thing that you learn. And um, I think it's important to have the two concurrent because you're right. You, you, you might train person, but they're not active. You must have to the process. They're not they're not um, uh, lubricated. Yeah, yeah. And here's your advantage in one sense in a smaller church. You can do that. You, you can, uh, perhaps not totally, but you can take a bunch of people by the hand and say, let's go and do such and such. I remember Cole Marshall, when I was 18, I went to University of New South Wales, and Cole said, do you want to come and do some library law and evangelism with me? And I said, no, I don't think I do, Cole. <laughs> but I'm happy to watch you do it. And so I hid behind trees and, <laughs> and, and watched Cole do it. And I thought, I was there. I was within 30 metres. <laughs> but I wasn't ready to do it. And I watched him do it. And I thought, well, I could give that a try. And so it was kind of see one um, and then try one uh, and then teach one. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is discipling. And in a smaller church, you can do that. In our church... Uh, it's, it's a little bit beyond us to try to do all that. We've tried to do it along the way as church has been smaller. But actually to get people on board to do it in a total hit, pretty hard to do. So here's the, um, is this the last one? Close to last, not quite. It's the, my next myth is that the core people will evangelise. The core people will evangelise. Now, would that were true, but I think it isn't. Um, it, it, now, it may be true in your context, but I, my observation is even our, even our most mature people in church, well, sorry, even our most able people in church who lead our Bible study groups, I think won't always be our best evangelists because, and therefore they'll pass it on to their own groups because they themselves are fearful about evangelism. And unless they've dealt with that issue, 
Um, I, I ought not to assume that they'll just go and evangelise. Now, I, one of the things that's observed about larger churches is um, in larger churches the, the suspicion is that the newly converted are the ones who go and evangelise. Now, I think, that's, I think that is true, but not in my context. Um, we want to skill up our newly converted so they can evangelise because they've got all these networks of new friends. So it's important that we do that. But in my context, it's the core who do evangelise. Uh, it's the people who are the most mature people in church, but only because we've poured a lot of time into them to help them think through their conviction and their confidence and their connection. And, and they don't just automatically do it. And it's not like once they've got it, they're always going to do it because they grow timid over time and you have to keep reminding them. And, and mission actually has to be on every single channel in church life. It's got to be in their growth groups. It's got to be from the pulpit. Uh, it's got to be in the prayer requests. It's got to be in the announcements. It's got to be everywhere. Otherwise, we, our natural sinful default is the fear of man. And it happens for the mature members in church and it happens for the immature members in church. And so you constantly, I find, you constantly, not in a um, slave-driving way, but in an encouraging way, you need to constantly address it, I think. Um, so the second, um, or the next thing is part of that, that announcements just give details about the event that's coming up. No, announcements are always an opportunity to keep the vision before people about what you want to do. So our announcements, in, my argument is our announcements in church are always a vision-setting opportunity. So I announce the upcoming life event. We're saying, you know what, remember our goal is to reach 30,000 people on the Central Coast. And we're seeing X number of people converted. That's really exciting, but we're a long way short of where we want to be. We want under God to do all we can to bend every effort to see people come to Christ. So here's the thing that's coming up. So you want to keep the vision before people. Don't just give the details. Um, and I think this could be my last. All Christians have the same role. Now remember, Don, what, what background have you come out of? Originally, hmm. uh, Okay, okay. Now, I was asking the question for a slightly different reason. I've come out of a disciple-making background. I came out of that background with Cole Marshall and, and was continued in it for a number of years with other people in the Navigators. And the assumption in that background often is that everybody can be a disciple-making <coughs> disciple. And I wish that were true, but I suspect it isn't true. I agree with that. It's not true. Yeah, we want it to be true. Um, and to some extent, people can move a certain distance along the path. But for all, sorts of, for all sorts of reasons, just the personality makeup I have, all sorts of things mean some people won't be able to totally do that. And so not all Christians have the same role. Some people in our church are just fantastic inviters but cannot clearly explain the gospel. They know the gospel. just can't articulate it clearly. But they're great inviters. And some of them are just really eccentric. They're great inviters because they're strange people. (laughs) And they won't hear this on the table. They won't know who I'm talking about. But um, Some some people are just good inviters. Uh, 
and they have great networks of friends. But some people can sit down with a person and explain the gospel in a clear way. Uh, some people have the patience to follow them up. Uh, some of those guys who can explain the gospel in a clear way are then off doing something else. But you need the patient work of follow-up to take place for a person to actually come to faith. More so today than ever uh, because the reality is it takes a long time for people to actually come to faith.